0: Episode 6 of the Bomber Brothers Podcast, part of the Pinstripe Alley community of podcasts. Sean and Ryan with you today, and we have a couple very exciting guests this episode. David Cohn and Jack Curry stopped by to talk about their new book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher, which is out today as we record on a Tuesday, May 14th. And, uh, Sean, I think we could say that this was probably the interview we've... uh, I've been among the most excited that we've done so far since we started this podcast. Obviously, given, given watching Cone as a pitcher growing up and how much we enjoyed watching him play,
1: I definitely had a little too much juice early, as you'll <laughs> as you'll hear in the interview. I was really nervous the uh, first time we talked to a former player, and not only like any former player, but I mean, I was telling my wife like we were talking to David Cone, and I'm like. I watched this guy pitch on my ninth birthday and save the Yankee season in game three of the world series. And obviously watched him pitch when I was eight years old, the rounds before that, but, uh, and then he pitched in our first playoff game we ever went to together. And I was what, 11 and and you were nine at the time. So to be able to talk to him was just such a treat. And, uh, the interview went great aside from me stuttering over all my questions because I was freaking out. But, um, (laughs) Yeah, I was really excited to talk to him. I mean, uh, it's something I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, he definitely did not disappoint. He gave some great insight into what led to his full-on em- embracing of advanced stats in baseball and how that's translated into how he analyzes games on Yes as a color commentator and you know his mindset on the mound during his perfect game, which also he goes into great detail in his book just what it was like in between innings uh, as he got closer to that perfect game, the conversation on the mound with Joe Torre in Game Three of the '96 World Series, everything from all those big moments to late night parties with David Wells and and Charlie Sheen and Metallica on <laughs> on road trips in 1998. So, the, uh, both of them were great, and uh, we can't wait to play that. Play that for you guys. Uh, first things first, we should probably touch on the flurry of roster moves that happened for uh, the Yankees yesterday. Before we get into that, first, first things first, the Yankees, you know, again, more players to the IL or, or even back to the IL in some cases. But the Yankees keep winning. They take two out of three from from Tampa Bay, and when we recorded last week uh, in the Brian Hoke episode, we talked about how winning one game would would be okay with us and the Yankees did one better they took two they win they win Snell's start which was which was very impressive Tanaka pitched probably his best game of the season and then the offense comes alive late after the power outage at that stupid stadium that in Tampa Bay
1: but, well that was the second one they had one on Friday they had a problem with the lights on Friday night too
0: yep but um wow Two out of three at the Trop. That's uh that's good stuff from the Yankees. So obviously a half game out of first place after that and uh, rained out on Monday. But and, and then it's it's like as soon as some good things happen, you remember oh right this team seems to be cursed with the with the rule of thirteen. There always has to be thirteen guys on the IL. It seems like so <laughs> Andujar back to the IL. This one seems like it's it's now it seems like this is heading towards surgery. For me at least I don't know about what, what you think
1: uh yeah I, I don't know I uh, part of me thinks maybe they feel like they rushed him back or something and want to just kind of give him an excuse to reset because he's really I mean the Tampa series was awesome and we could just touch on that a little more but he's looked terrible at the plate and I think maybe and and I mean I know um you know, Cuddy was kind of saying, don't be surprised if they send it hard down to get some work. And maybe this is just an excuse for them to take a little pressure off him and not seem like a demotion. But then the other side of you is the side that you brought up is, OK, maybe they played this wrong and, and he actually needs surgery. So I, I don't know. I think there's two options there. I'm trying to look at it as an optimistic one, um, because as much as the legend of Gio Urshela has grown uh, day by day, it still would be nice to have Miggy in the lineup.
0: Oh, of course. And and you mentioned Ur- Urshela. and it's it's almost like this this time Andohar's going to the IL feels a lot different than the first time he did back in early April because now you have Urshela and DJ Lumehu playing so well and that and then you hear that Didi's uh, progressing nicely, so all of a sudden you it seems like you might have some infield depth to cover up Andahar's absence, at least for a little while. I'm not expecting Urshela to keep posting a 950 OPS throughout the season, but hopefully he can still remain you know, above the 800 mark and, and be a productive player at the plate while continuing to be great in the field like everyone expected him to be. But all of a sudden, this 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 IL trip feels like it's a little more manageable than last time, given how some guys have stepped up.
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. And I'm just, while you're talking, I'm pulling up the Yankees lineup from last night before they got rained out. And even, I think they were giving LeMahieu a day off yesterday. Um, but even with that, it, it really wasn't a, a horrible lineup. I mean, you know, you had Hicks, Voight, Sanchez, Frazier, Torres, Gardner, Urshela, Estrada, and Mabin. I mean, th- that's a representative major league lineup. And that's even with giving some of the, you know, giving LeMahieu a night off. Um, so, I mean, we'll see um, where we go. But, I mean, having Hicks back is, you know, a huge, huge thing. I mean, he was, what, second on the team in, in war last year or first?
0: Yeah, he was. Because Judge
1: missed so much time. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, having having the guys back, especially Sanchez and uh, and Hicks, will help absorb that. And then the emergence of Urshela, not only – with his bat, but just the defense we knew he can play helps absorb that. But, of course, you hope Miggy's okay. You hope he goes down, gets a little rest, just resets mentally, goes down to the minors, tears it up, just like look at what happened with Green. He goes down to the minors, lights it up, and then comes back and pitches a dominant ninth inning on Sunday.
0: Yeah, that was just one appearance, but, man, that was flashbacks to 2017 Chad Green pumping 97 at the top of the zone, keeping hitters. He had hitters. Some moxie. Yeah, yeah, keeping hitters off balance with, with the occasional slider, which didn't, I mean obviously he threw it I think one or two times the whole inning because his fastball was working so well, but when you're throwing your fastball at 97 instead of 94 or 95, all of a sudden that slider looks a lot better, so that that would be a huge development given what what Tommy Canely has been, and then you factor in Chad Green getting back to form, that would obviously be huge for the bullpen. So and that, Britain looked
1: good over the weekend.
0: Yeah, yep. Britain looked good. Um, Adavino got out of some serious trouble in the first game of the series. So that was nuts. Yeah, oh, <laughs>
1: watching, watching. Were you watching that when it happened, or were you listening on the radio?
0: Because I, I, I was down that night. I was, I was still watching. I, I uh, waited to leave until the game ended. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that was that was
1: awesome. What a great play by Lemayhu there to stop that in his tracks, turn the double play.
0: So now uh, I guess the last thing to address is Loizaga uh, going to be out for at least a month. And, you know, he didn't look great in his last outing, but we, we've seen really good stuff from him. It, it still seems like to me like he can be a good bullpen piece. It just it just seems like as soon as he starts getting extended innings as, as a starter or, or a long reliever, he starts to uh, break down a little bit, which is what happened last year. So not sure – what this means for Luizaga moving forward, but not going to have him for at least another month. And yet another player goes to the I.L. I think that marks the 17th different Yankee to go to the injured list now this year, which is uh, it's pretty remarkable to think of how many guys have gotten injured. But Luizaga, the latest one.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame, but like you said, he hadn't really been effective in his last start, and – I mean, with the doubleheader this week, we still will need that the starter this time through. But then there's an off day, so I think they could probably pitch Sessa on Wednesday for that doubleheader, or you know, probably better to pitch him on Wednesday and then uh, skip the fifth starter the next time through. And you know, then by then hopefully Paxton will be back. He said his knee is feeling better already, so we'll see. But um, uh, it just with Loiza, like you said, it just it always seems to be you know all these injuries every time he every time he extends himself and I mean I'm sure that's that's frustrating for him because he wants to be a starter and eventually he'll want to be paid like a starter but um it might be in his best interest to accept a bullpen role just well not accept but to to pursue that and might be in the team's best interest especially um especially with how he's been getting hurt and everything
0: yeah, and it seems like he could fit that mold. He has he has a he has high velocity on his fastball, and he has a solid uh, solid secondary pitch. Obviously, I don't feel like he has a very strong third pitch, which is what hurt Severino early on in his career. Obviously, Severino just has way better uh, raw stuff than Loizaga does. But we'll we'll see how he we'll see how he bounces back from this injury, and and Andohar as well. Hopefully, like you said, it's just a way to get him to hit the reset button, maybe get some more work down in the minors to build his, build his confidence back up. Maybe he's, maybe Andahar's a little hesitant at the plate to unleash his full swing. Maybe there's a concern about that injured shoulder. Who knows? Maybe the shoulder was bothering him more than he originally said, or maybe it's bothering him again now after taking some, Full swings in the at the major league level, but I would consider that one to be the more concerning injury of the two we learned about yesterday. But given the fact that it's the Royals up next, hopefully the Yankees <laughs> are, are still are still able to handle them in the coming days. With Wednesday being a doubleheader,
1: I thought I'm sorry, I thought they were playing the Orioles, not the Royals. Did I
0: say the? Oh, I, well, I meant the Orioles. They're,
1: they're they're the Royals are coming down the pike, so we'll. Uh,
0: yeah, I meant I meant the Orioles soon enough.
1: Cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a soft landing spot, and I mean, hopefully, you know, with the way that Hap threw the ball his last time out, he's turned a corner, and you have that rotation depth, and, you know, Tanaka and, and CC didn't look great his last time out, but, who you know, you, you knew you were going to have one game at the, at the trough that was just a shit show, and that, and that was that game, but um, other than that, great series, and I, I think they're set up for this week, even with the doubleheader mixed in. Uh, to do some damage especially with hicks back it it lets you do some good things with um with the outfield and i hope with the double header tomorrow because he's gonna Gardner's gonna have to play i hope they give Gardner the night off tonight although he had one yesterday with the rain out so he's probably good for another hundred now
0: (laughs) well he needs more than one day off for the sake of his entire second half of the season they need to start getting him some rest but um but yeah i mean what what else could you say about Gardner? even if he's not tearing it up at the plate the fact that he's still playing every day when when you know what it likely means for his second half i mean the same thing happened last year with with judge going down and it's he just he steps up he plays every day but hopefully he starts getting some time off because this is not spelling good news come after the all-star break for his production just take some HGH and and he'll be okay. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think that's something we've talked about, um, you know, pretty pretty extensively. But I, I mean, you're hoping with the guys that are supposed to come back that, and I don't mean to say it like this, but there's no other way to say it. You really don't need him in the second half as much as you would think, but you still want your fourth outfielder to be productive. Yeah, and maybe he could teach Clint Frazier how to play defense.
0: That would that would very that would help a lot. <laughs> Frazier has been an adventure in the in the outfield. Hopefully he can uh, start hitting like he did before he hit the I.L. and then it wouldn't matter as much. But other, other than that, to, to sum up uh, business as usual for the Yankees this week, players got hurt, but they kept winning somehow. That's pretty much the best recap we can give you for the Yankees this past week. And um, other than that, I, I think it's time to talk to Coney and Curry.
1: Let's see what Mr. Cohn has to say.
0: All right, so again, we talked to David Cohn and Jack Curry, who both uh, together wrote the book Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. It's a fantastic read, highly recommended. It. It's, it's out today, and if you're not sold, then listen to these two guys talk about the book, and then uh, maybe you'll go out and buy a copy. So here's David Cohn and Jack Curry. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're joined now by two exciting guests. They're the co-authors of the new book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. First, we have, of course, former Yankee great, and you can catch him in the Yes booth now, David Cohn. David, thanks so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: And also, uh, who else helped write the book and also helped write a book with Derek Jeter? Jack Curry. You can catch him on the Yes Network as well, doing great analysis. Jack, thanks for coming on. No problem. We appreciate you. So, Jack, can you uh, just walk us through the process of how this book came to be? You know, did it, when did it start out as just an idea, and when did it become like, okay, we're doing this? And, and, how, and was there an effort to make it different from so many other biographies that you see from other former players? Because it really seems like this book took on a, a more unique angle aside from just, you know, this is my story.
3: in in some way, Ryan, it it probably started more than 20 years ago because I've been watching David Cohn on the mound for longer than that, maybe a quarter of a century but speaking in more recent terms a few years ago, just having listened to David on Yes and obviously working with him on Yes and watching him pitch for so many years, I had this idea of doing a book where you crawled inside the mind of a pitcher. None of us really know what it's like to not have the feel for your slider or, or not know if you're going to be able to throw that splitter and get that movement on it that you want and just just to feel desperate out there and as as great as David's career was one of the great things I think about this book is he shows you that there is a vulnerability to major league pitchers even when you're the best of the best you you're going to have some issues on the mound so I approached David in the back of the Yankee Stadium press box a few years back I, I gave him my my little pitch and I waited for his response and it was quick. And he said, I like the idea, let's do it. So we started working on it and, and I'm glad you said you feel it's different because we, we did try to be different because as much as this is a quote memoir and it covers David's career and it, and it has obviously a million stories from his career and his life, there's also lessons in there. There are philosophies in there. There are, there are theories in there. And then there are stories about Jeter, Mariano, Pettit, Uh Carter, Hernandez, Darling, Strawberry, Gooden. So we tried to take you on a ride through David's career, but we also took some some pit stops away from his career and told about the personal side and and the human side of of his life and the game.
0: And David, in in the book you talk about how your ninety-three season is what started your interest in saber metrics and you know, more advanced numbers because it was by more advanced stats your most valuable season. And, you know, how has that helped your seemingly seamless transition into embracing this new data as a color commentator? And is it something you hope catches on with other analysts in the booth who happen to also be former ball players?
2: Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, You know, it's in every front office now. There seems like a race uh, amongst uh, different organizations to play catch up and then not only play catch up with their analytics department, but also protect their information as they develop it. I mean, there's so much data out there. I I really believe that we're so kind of in the wild West in terms of interpreting a lot of this new data, what makes sense and what doesn't, what and is more valuable than, than, than other sorts of reams of data. So, uh, yeah, I think more and more players and broadcasters are starting to, to get into the flow a little bit. I think they understand it's the future of the game. Uh, for me, it really did begin back then. Even before that, um, you know, I was I was on some Mets teams where I had some five hundred records, and uh, I thought I pitched better than that. And I just always was kind of a disgruntled pitcher that felt like one loss record wasn't enough to show the true value of a pitcher, particularly a starting pitcher. And uh, I went to a couple of arbitration cases against the Mets in the early nineties, or with my agent Steve Fear, uh, who was pretty progressive. Uh, during those years, and he showed me some some different ways to look at things, some groups of numbers, uh, at least the the type of numbers we had back then, probably the early days of Sabermetrics, that showed me uh, that we, we can peel back a few layers here and show some true value and try to give credit where credit is due.
0: You also mentioned that uh, Bobby Valentine once asked you in, I think, 2011 if you were possibly interested in joining a coaching staff, and you obviously have the pedigree of, personal success on the mound you now have this you know progressive mind towards uh the new data that many coaching staffs want have you has it ever crossed your mind to get back into the game in that form and maybe take on coaching or are you are you set up in the booth right now
2: yeah i really do enjoy broadcasting at this point you know i think every year that goes by i I understand the business a little better uh, the rhythm and timing of uh, when to speak, when not to speak, sometimes just being quiet, sometimes screwed on television, when to introduce the new metrics and when it's overload. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, right now I'm pretty content in what I'm doing. You know, I've had a couple of opportunities to, you know, including Bobby Bobby Valentine's uh, gesture back then to uh, interview for Major League Pitching Coach Job. But I just the timing wasn't right for me when those opportunities presented themselves, but you know, I would never totally close the door. I would never say never, uh, but I, I realize how difficult it is to be a major league pitching coach now and how fully immersed you have to be. It really is a year-round job, and there's so much more that goes into it than, say, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'd have to be ready to be fully committed, but, you know, as I said, I would never say never at this point. Yeah,
4: Jack, you and David tell the story of when David went was- has to throw at someone in the minors, and he missed on purpose. Given everything that's going on in the game, especially recently with Tim Anderson' debacle, what, what's your view
3: on hitters getting plunked today after bat flips showing emotion, and so on? Well, I'll give a short answer because because David's the one who actually, who actually got that command, so he should probably answer that. But even as David told me that story, however many years later, I, I could see the the sort of the concern in his eyes that he was a young kid trying to impress the, the Royals trying to make their team and well oh, by the way we've got this little feud going on with the opposing team why do not you, you drill this guy and and, and David I, I don't want to speak for you but I, I know that I know that you talked about how that that unnerved you and you just you just weren't going to do it essentially
2: yeah I mean the the command came from the late uh, dick Hauser who was a, you know has a Yankee connection as, as a coach there with the Yankees the manager then as a manager of the Royals and Tony LaRusso was uh the White Sox manager at the time and it was my first big league game in spring training my first appearance and Hauser came up to me in the dugout before I was set to go out and pitch that inning and told me to throw the first pitch as hard as I could behind the hitter's head he he told me don't hit him don't hit him in the head he said throw it behind his head to send a message and the hitter was uh a guy named Russ Mormon, who was um, from the Kansas City area where I grew up. I actually knew Russ. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say we were friends, but I had enormous respect for him. And he was a legendary athlete in the Kansas City area. And I just couldn't believe that this is what I'm going to do. And I was completely overwhelmed by the moment. And I literally threw the ball up to the press box. I mean, as you know, the screen behind home plate and the screen that rolls up to the press box, that's where the ball went. It rolled all the way up to the press box and back down. And... I was immediately thrown out of the game and, uh, and then sent down to the minor league camp right after that game. So that, that was my first big league game in, in spring training. Definitely
4: memorable. Um, you, uh, you, you butted heads with some coaches over the years, whether it be not wanting to stick to a certain delivery or, or strategy about pitch outs and things like that. Can you think of any other Yankees during your time there that were uh, equally hard-headed
2: uh, you know, there have been along the way. Uh, I, the problem is, is that a lot of them get marginalized or get released or get labeled. And, uh, once you get a label and you're trying to, uh, to work your way up through the minor leagues that you you easily get passed over by other prospects or other players that are deemed more coachable or easier to work with. So I, I feel kind of fortunate that, you know, I was able to, uh, push back and, kind of maintain my style while at the same time you know i really did had to conform to a certain extent along the way just to, to kind of maintain relationships with with uh, organizational pitching coaches but it was a struggle for me all the way through i just uh i i always push back i always you know i, I think it's a good thing to ask questions it's a good thing to uh to try to challenge uh, authority with you if you believe in your art that you're right or if you believe in a style that that, uh, that you want to, to continue to try to utilize so uh, at the end of the day I think uh, I was fortunate to break through and uh, still kind of maintain the style that I always uh, always thought was right for me and that's one of the things that Jack covers so well in the book that when I went when I was finally traded to the Mets It was the first time in my career where they kind of embraced my style. Uh, Everybody on that team, from Wally Backman to Keith Hernandez to Gary Carter, just loved uh, the fact that I changed arm angles or threw sidearm sliders. And uh, they embraced me and embraced that style. It was really the first time in my career that I really felt kind of liberated that, hey, these guys not only encouraged me to be me, but uh, they liked the style. And uh, that was just a tremendous feeling for the first time. I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of blossomed with the Mets, uh, and, and certainly in 1988 when, when I won 20 games. I think that was the culmination of, for the first time in my career, I felt like I was with a, with a group of coaches and players that really embraced me tremendous and, and jack when david was pitching he was going deeper into games than
4: most starters ever would today of course uh, being that the game has changed so much how much of what's changed with starters innings being limited do you think is due to injury concern and how much do you think is due to the fact that the live arms in the bullpen um are ready to take over in the sixth inning now
3: i think we'd have to say it's a combination of both i i, I don't have a uh a specific moment in history where, where things changed, I think it started out more as protecting starters. And I think it has now morphed into, well, we've got five guys in the bullpen. I mean, I'm thinking of the Yankees who, who throw 95 to 100. Why are we letting our, our pitcher go third time through the batting order? And David does a great job detailing some of this in the book, and he's talked about it on the air as well. There would be games with the Mets, for instance, where he might have 100 pitches in the fifth inning and he got back to the dugout and took a deep breath and said, okay, I got 30 more pitches. I, I can get this team through seven. Those, those days aren't happening anymore. We've, we've seen examples of pitchers being pulled out with, with no hitters after seven innings and in the 100-pitch neighborhood. And I think David does a good job of explaining in the book how you're never going to know who you're going to be at the 115-pitch mark if you never get a chance to get there, and as important as it is to protect your assets and, and make sure that your pitcher's arms are, are going to be solid for a 180-inning season, I do think sometimes protection can seep into coddling, and I, I don't mind seeing a guy get a chance to, to finish out his own his own start. It won't be a complete game anymore. It's almost as if seven innings is, is now the, uh, the new version of a complete game.
0: David, one of the most exciting parts about the book was your first time revisiting your perfect game in a play-by-play manner watching it again with Jack and was I'm wondering was there ever a time on your viewpoint from the mound where you saw a ball put in play obviously there was the great play by O'Neal by Knobloch uh, the ball getting caught in the sun briefly by Ricky Leday. was there ever a point where the ball was put in play and before you turned around you had that mindset of that's it like this this run at history is over
2: yeah, you know, I really have to point to the uh, the Hoses. Jose draw at that. Uh, you know, I think it was, you know, the ground ball to that particular play, you know, it was a 2-0 count. I knew I had to throw a strike. Uh, you know, I didn't have a 3-0, 3-ball count the entire day, and that's the big difference between a perfect game and a, and a no hitter you know a no hitter you can you can walk a guy or you, can, you can you're not worried about the count as much and with Jose Vidro I knew I had to throw a strike I threw it right down the middle about knee high he smashed it he hit it very hard and I thought that's it the sound off the bat I thought it was going up the middle for a hit and Block was positioned well he, he had good range he ran over and backhanded the ball and then of course with Chuck at that particular time that was right in the right in the middle of his throwing woes and uh, and he kind of had the yips a little bit. And, um, you know, he wheeled and dealed and threw a strike to first base, and that was the loudest cheer of the day. I think everybody in the ballpark knew what was going on. And, uh, you know, it was at that point when I felt like I caught a break on a 2-0 fastball that I really had to give in on. And, and it was hit well by Jose Vidro who was a very good hitter. And uh, when Knoblock made that play, I kind of felt like this might be my day.
0: Speaking of uh, making a big pitch in, in crucial moments, you, had, uh, you talk about a crucial strikeout to Troy O'Leary in game two of the 99 ALCS, which actually happened to be the first playoff game me and Sean ever went to. But um, is, is, there, is there a single pitch, just one pitch that you made in your career that stands out as what you feel was like your best executed pitch in a big situation, like a certain instance that really stands out where you made your perfect pitch at, at a really high leverage point in a game?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Jack knows me so well. I mean, Jack has a really great understanding of pitching. I sort of joke that Jack and I are kind of pitching nerds. Uh, we both have conversations that go pretty pretty in-depth that might be boring to some people. But there was a particular game when I was traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays, and we faced the A's in the, in the, the LCS. And uh, Oakland was a great team. Ricky Henderson was their leadoff hitter. They had the Bash brothers, McGuire, McGuire and uh, uh The shortstop on that team was, Wall. Weiss, and there was a, a point in that game where there was um, uh, I, it was a scoring situation. I think there was one out, there's a runner on third. It was uh, a tight game. Um, Walt Weiss uh, ran the count to three and two, and uh, Pat Borders, the catcher, called for a fastball, and I shook off to a slider. It was probably the best backdoor slider I threw in my career, certainly in a high-leverage situation and in a big-time game. And uh, I think that was probably the best slider I ever threw. It had really tight spin on it, and it broke perfectly uh, over the outside corner. And I got Walt Weiss looking on the call third strike. And and then Carney Lansford was the next batter, and he was the right-handed batter. And I threw some pretty good sliders to strike him out. But... Uh, That was a big moment. Uh, You know, the Blue Jays, we had lost the first game one at home against the A's, and uh, that was game two of the LCS in 1992. That sequence to Walt Weiss and us being able to win that game, I think, was probably one of the keys to the Blue Jays being able to to get past the A's and then on to the World Series for Canada's first.
4: Jack? Um, Cone's start in that 99 ALCS, with have that against O'Leary, um, is actually, in my opinion, one of his more underrated performances because even though they're up one nothing, Pedro's looming in Game 3 of that series. Now that you've had the opportunity to go back through his whole career with him, is there one of the starts that stands out as maybe
3: a more underrated performance? Well, that's a great question. It's, I, I don't think it's underrated, but I don't think you can talk enough about David... Coming back from aneurysm surgery, wondering if his career was over in 1996, doing the rehab and kind of almost shortening up the rehab and saying to the Yankees, I don't want to waste any bullets. Let's go. If I'm going to pitch, I need to pitch now. And then going out to Oakland and throwing a seven-inning no-hitter with his father in the stands. Like I said, it's gotten a lot of attention. People covered it then, and we still talk about it now. But to hear David take me back through those moments and, and the doubt about coming back, and I mean, think about it, guys. You have an aneurysm under your right armpit, and it's they have a, they have graft it back together, and they tell you everything's going to be fine. You're still trying to throw the ball 90 miles an hour, and, and, and David wondered, is, is that thing going to tear open? Now, the doctors assured him, but you still get out there, and I think there's a little bit of doubt, and for him to pitch the way that he did in, in that situation – I was at that game, and I'll never forget the uh, the vibe we were feeling in the press box about, is, is this guy really doing this after having been off for a few months? So that, that game really stands out to me. And, and David, you call that the um, most emotional game you ever pitched, and you said you were content with the
4: decision to be removed despite having the no-hitter, but was there any part of you that, that wanted
2: the fight to stay in that game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're when you're in the middle middle of the game, you know, I, when you're uh, presented with that decision from your manager, you're not really thinking clearly. You know, I I, I described to Jack that I was just kind of stunned the whole game. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, like Jack described. Uh, I couldn't believe this happened, was happening either. I was just so thrilled uh, to be going through it. Uh, the fact that my father, who was my first pitching coach, was sitting right above the dugout and every time I walked off the inning I walked off between innings I could, I could make eye contact with my father and all the way through yeah I mean if, obviously I wanted to stay in that game but, but Joe Torre commanded such respect and the way he approached me and the way he described it to me is, is uh, more of a caring decision hey look we're, we're worried about your health if I let you go back out for the eighth. You're going to, you know, you did over 100 pitches, then you've got to pitch the ninth as well. And, you know, I, I had only made two rehab starts, and my pitch count was 85 to, to 100 pitches that day. So, in order to complete that, that no hitter, I probably would have had to push well past that point. So, I certainly understood the concern, but I think it was the way Joe Torrey described it to me and how much respect I had for him. And then he just turned around and walked away. He didn't allow any debate. So I remember just sitting back on the bench and being stunned, and not really knowing what to say. And then Mel Stoudemire, the late great Mel, came up to me and, and kind of uh, once again, uh, kind of uh, just in a nurturing way, just uh, explained to me the decision-making process behind it, and that you know we're we're, we're going to win the World Series this year. We're you know we're, we've got bigger goals here, you know, uh, personal achievements. Or as much as a, as a no-hitter would be great. Uh, you know we've got we've got bigger fish to fry.
0: Dave, one of the more enjoyable parts of the book was you diving into the dynamic between you, David Wells, and and Joe Torrey, because obviously they butted heads at times, Wells with a more rebellious nature, and, and you kind of took it upon yourself to help manage that. You guys would share your own hotel room on road trips, and you had uh you know hosted some parties which was fun to imagine what that was probably like do you have any uh any funny stories from that mini party room i know you said some celebrities and actors um stopped by and and also any stories that you didn't share in the book about your and mike stanton's bathroom pranks that you used to pull in the locker room
2: <laughs> uh, yes yeah the uh it, i mean It can get pretty boring in a major league clubhouse. So, yeah, I mean, uh, grown men will act like children, that's for sure. And uh, the the type of humor, obviously. uh, There's communal showers. uh, There's communal bathrooms. So nothing is sacred. You see everything. You do everything. You make fun of everything. Uh, There's so much there uh, that uh, kind of... uh, Gets into the realm of kind of gross at times. You know, I mean, it certainly uh, Stanton was was uh, quite a character, and uh, as far as Boomer goes, in those that year in nineteen ninety eight, uh, you know, after he threw his perfect game, and as that summer unfolded. You know, Paul O'Neill's described him as the best pitcher in the American League. Really, the rest of the year, and uh, that's kind of how we all viewed it. Every time he took the mound, uh, his confidence grew, and uh, every time we went on a road, we had a lot of fun. And I think I could just see him loosen up. He was the type of guy that needed a pat on the back, he needed a friend, and we we became very close uh, during that summer. And yes, uh, uh, on uh, on certain nights, we had some great parties. I mean, everybody from Charlie Sheen would show up, uh, musicians from Metallica. Uh, Lars, the drummer, showed up. I mean, Boomer has uh, a lot of friends in the music industry, and uh, and, and uh, depending on which city we were in or which uh, which hotel we stayed in, yeah, you know, there was there was always something happening. Always a group of really interesting celebs that showed up, uh, locals as well, friends we've met over our years of traveling. We had some great parties and some late nights, and uh, and uh, you know, it just seemed to really uh, build a close friendship with with. Uh, with Boomer and uh, and his confidence really grew the whole summer uh, all the way through the World Series. So, you know, it was uh, one of the most remarkable years of my career. And uh, to this day, Boomer and I are still very close uh, because of our friendship during that year.
0: Jack, you and Dave take a whole chapter to talk about that crucial sixth inning in Game 3 of the 96 World Series, and and Jack talks about how he almost welcomed that bunt by Mark Lemke even before it was popped up in the air to Cecil. And, you know, with so many fans still clamoring for that version of softball, or small ball, excuse me, do you, uh, do you feel like most pitchers are like Cone and, and almost welcoming a bunt because it essentially just gives you an out? I, I think
2: they should be talking about that in
3: 1996. I mean, if you listen to him in the booth in 2019, he's, he's shouting it just as uh, loudly, yes, give me that out. Now, you have to be able to field the ball and you have to be ready for it, but I, I do think that in that situation, if you go back and, and read that chapter, and so much happened in that sixth inning, that's why we decided to do an entire chapter on it. We needed to, to break it out. 27-pitch inning. he walks in a run, he has the mound meeting with Torrey, but dissecting that inning, Lemke doesn't bunt, and, and Lemke puts the ball in play, and, and who knows how that inning might, uh, might have unfolded differently. So I absolutely agree with David that, that Lemke and the Braves did him a favor there by bunting. And that mound conference with Torrey, David, has become
4: part of Yankee lore in that inning. Um how hard is it to walk that balance when Torrey comes out between your competitive fire and your pride, knowing that you can get McGriff out while still kind
2: of having what happened in 95 still fresh in your mind? Yes, I mean, that, that is really, uh, to me, uh, something that, uh, that I still think about. Uh, you know, the heartbreak of the 95 loss, the ball to Doug Strange, and here I am again. Bases loaded, another situation uh, in the next possible postseason game. Uh, the next possible big moment in a postseason game. Um, you know, it, I couldn't believe it, and and I walked at another run. You know, I mean that's the ironic part. In '95, I walked up Doug Strange with the bases loaded. and in 96, I walked wearing Klesko with the bases loaded. So, uh, you know, luckily I had a little bit margin, more margin for error. And, uh, you know, can I get Fred McGriff out? Fred McGriff's a Hall of Fame player in my book. I mean, I know he hasn't quite uh, gotten the votes yet, but uh, he is a Hall of Fame caliber player. And I'm a right-handed pitcher, and he's a left-handed batter. So, so Torre certainly could have been justified in make it a move right there, but he trusted me, and he wanted to hear it from me. And no matter what I said to him on that mound, he wanted to get closer and make sure that we were nose to nose and made eye contact, and so he could read, you know, my emotions. And I really had to sell him that I was okay. and uh, And of course, every pitcher who's worth his salt would say, "Yes, this is my game. I want to stay in this game." But. You know, Tori needed a little bit more reassurance at that point. So it was uh, it was the most remarkable mound meeting I've ever been involved with. Any any manager because he almost grabbed me and pulled me close to him and said, "Hey, wait, no, this is too important. I need to know you're okay." And this is obviously still I'm still on the heels of, of coming back from an aneurysm surgery at that point. So there was still some some concern as to whether my arm was okay or not. But uh, I, I I've always remembered that I've always uh, been thankful to Joe Tory for trusting me. And, uh, you know, even after the game, I, I, I was a little glib, and I said, well, I lied to him. You know, I did my best job of lying, and that was just me trying to trying to be glib in a post-game press conference. But the reality of it was, is, yeah, I did believe that that was my game, and I, I needed to stay in that game. And thankfully, it all worked out. Now, you know, you, you, you didn't believe in yourself, but would,
4: would you have admitted to Joe if, if you felt you were and How does the pitcher know when he's at the end of his rope? Because I feel like... You know, you you see, like you said, that any pitcher worth his salt would want to stay in the game. How does a pitcher identify, you know what, it's just, I'm done? Yeah, you
2: know, I'm not sure the pitchers in that situation. I think the vast majority of pitchers probably don't know, or if they do, they're trained to trick themselves into believing that they can still still get the job done. Um, I think it's probably different in today's game where you have pitchers, as Jack said before, uh, they're, they're trained to go maximum effort, and then when that's done, then they're out of the game, and then you have a power reliever brought into the game. Um, you know, back then, we were... We were trained to pitch with less. Uh, There was finesse that came out once you got a little bit fatigued. Uh, You learned how to pitch a little bit more the deeper you got into the game. So that was my era. You know, even if I was a little bit diminished, I still felt like I could take a little bit off my splitter or invent a bitch or go to my finesse game a little bit more. And the reason I had that game was because I was allowed to to pitch more and throw more pitches and to experience what it was like at the 115 pitch mark and to be able to create and subtract a little bit. And uh, Jack and I talk about less is more sometimes. And sometimes if you can back off some of your pitches, you you can throw the timing off of hitters. So I always felt like I had something in, in my bag of tricks to be able to pitch, even if I was fatigued a little bit.
0: We're talking with David Cohn and Jack Curry, the minds behind full count, the education of a pitcher. Uh, one last one just to kind of put you on the hot seat, David. If it wasn't you on the mound that night, what, what starter do you think who, who would have walked to the mound would you have felt like, okay, we got this, we can still save this series? Well, uh, you know,
2: game three, uh, You know, when you're down two games and you're on the road, uh, I certainly feel like Andy Pettit had that toughness. I think Andy Pettit was a big part of those runs, uh, particularly in 1996. I think he was our best pitcher that year, um, even though it was probably his first full year in the big leagues. Uh, I know he, he got a pretty good taste at 95 when he came up, but he really established himself in 96. So, I, I, you know, if there was one guy, especially in 1996, it would be Andy Pettit.
0: Certainly a solid pick after the way he pitched in game five. But, again, that's David Cohn and Jack Curry. Uh, they're book full count comes out tuesday may 14th it's a great read guys uh great job on the book and thank you so much for talking with us we had an awesome time
2: thanks a lot for having us guys yeah my pleasure man good job.
0: Okay, again, special thanks to David Cohn and, and Jack Curry. That was so much fun for us. Hope everyone enjoyed it and hope everyone goes out and gets a copy of Full Count because it's it's a fantastic book and and honestly you wouldn't really expect anything less, Sean, given how creative of a pitcher Cohn was in his career and how much he's you know, continued to want to learn about pitching and baseball as a whole, even with even when The way people interpret the game may be changing from when he was playing using a lot more advanced numbers. He's tackled it full on, and I think uh, all that stuff comes across well in the book, and especially with, with Jack Curry helping, who's done a great job at the Yes Network now after being at the New York Times for so many years. He's been around baseball forever, so the two of them together came out with a really, really, really good read.
1: I'm excited to read it. And I know that you got an advanced copy, but I had already pre-ordered mine. So Amazon will be dropping it off some point within the next few hours, I'm sure. Um, So I'm excited. I'm excited to sit down and read it, especially after talking to David. I mean, you could just hear all that. He really doesn't. I guess hold back isn't the right word because it's not very explosive what he has to say, but he really, he's very honest and very open. And that's something he talked about in the interview is he wanted to write something that holds himself accountable. And and that's what I found really interesting was this, and and you always got this from Cone when he's broadcasting, which has been a whole great second chapter to his career, um, is that he's not just some athlete that is kind of all huffing and puffing. He's very uh, introspective and and very interested in kind of gaining more knowledge and, and, and reflecting. And that's, that came across in the interview and I'm sure it comes across in the book.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. He's, he opens himself up as someone who always wanted to be, you know, still on the mound for the last out of the game. And obviously that's reflected in his pitch count in so many big games in the postseason. But then he, you know, he also opens up and gets honest about how there might've been like, how there might've been some, uh, maybe a hint of, Regret, given how susceptible that can leave him to injury, or how he lost his uh, efficiency late in games. So it's he's he's definitely he's definitely honest. It's literally an open book, I guess you can say, and um, definitely gives a revealing look into a lot of some of the biggest moments of his career, from his World Series with the Blue Jays to the '95 ALDS, the '96 World Series, uh, the perfect game, uh, struggling through. Uh, 2000 season and trying to get in sync with Jorge Posada all of that stuff was just great to read and obviously uh, a great way to give us a new look into some of our favorite moments of watching Cone when we were younger uh, growing up so I guess uh, the next question would be I mean, what sticks out for you when it comes to David Cone what's your favorite David Cone moment that you can remember growing up watching uh. the Yanks
1: Definitely when he gave up the home run to Tio Martinez on Old Timers Day when I was there. <laughs> uh, no, that that was awesome, but uh, his reaction was great to that too. Um, my favorite co moment probably is the the perfect game. I, I vividly remember watching that uh, you know, in our living room when we lived up in Washington. Um, I think the day before your birthday. Yeah, it was the so day before it, my birthday. Like, I remember what it felt like when that ball was hit to Knoblock. Everybody was like, in, I mean, me, you, Kyle, and I think mom and dad were watching too. We're like, oh, he's going to throw it away, and he doesn't. And then the ball to the day, I remember that as well. So, um, yeah, I, I remember the, the perfect game, probably the best. And then, of course, seeing him pitch in the first playoff game we ever went to was great. But, um, you know, game three of the 96 World Series has to be maybe tied with number one because that – that start changes everything. I mean, if they lose that, that game, they don't win the 96 World Series most likely. And, you know, everything else that has happened since then might not happen, especially when you have a volatile Steinbrenner. So, I mean, when you think about all the little things that happened to, to set this dynasty up, that's one of probably the top three moments to keep the, to keep the train moving there.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I would probably go with Perfect Game just because it happened a few years after and I remember it more. I was still only six when Cone was pitching that Game 3. Obviously, from wearing out the VHS on the 96 World Series video, I remember everything about the start now. But but just thinking back and remember watching it live, I'd say the, the Perfect Game was uh, definitely a sufficient birthday present that year when I turned nine years old. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so definitely the perfect game. Obviously, that is such a rarity. And for him to be the, just the third Yankee to do it was pretty incredible, especially given the fact that uh, Don Larson, I believe, was on hand that game. Yogi, so that was, it was Yogi yeah, Berard. Yeah, so that was, that was really cool. That was really special. And, uh, again, super thankful to him and Jack Curry for talking to us. Everyone should go get a copy of Full Count as soon as you can. You won't be disappointed. And, yeah. Um, Sean, uh, oh, you got something to add?
1: No, I, I was just gonna say, like, you know, we we had touched on this, but I just, I mean, I, I think I know you'll agree with me, but I, I really, I loved watching Cone pitch. He's one of my favorites just because of the way that he would figure stuff out, and, um, you know, you could tell he would outthink a lot of batters, and and not only that, he would outthink the strategy of the game. I, I love when he's broadcasting, and you have runners on first and second and two outs and he's like well you know there is technically a base open it's just third base and, and like the way that he would pitch like that was awesome and that's what makes cone so great in the broadcast booth and that's something that like i know i'm pretty vocal on it about twitter but he really is the best color man that probably in in baseball right now right up there when ken singleton's doing color that's that's right there too but cone brings this whole new breath of fresh air and i know a lot of people don't Care for the analytics, but Cone I think presents it in a way that he can relate it to. Okay, when I was playing, like this is what I'm thinking about. So I think it, it helps people that are a little anxious about understanding it get there. And I just I hope I, I selfishly want to keep him on the Yes Network, but I you know so we can listen to him. But I think if if Fox or ESPN were smart, they'd be trying to gobble that guy up because he really really creates an engaging atmosphere as an announcer.
0: Yeah, 100% agree, and he he got to dip his toes in those waters recently getting, uh, some national broadcast time. And obviously he was fantastic and yeah, 100% agree. Best, best color commentator in, in the game in, in my opinion. Um, so, so that's it. I mean, what are you, uh, what are you looking forward to this week as we get ready to close up shop here?
1: Well, um, on Friday I will get my diploma. I finally graduated grad school. I, uh, wasn't sure that was going to happen, <laughs> but I pulled. I pulled it off. Um, so I'm. I'm graduating this weekend. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And um, so that that's going to be hard to top. Like, uh, I don't know. I really like. It was. It was really one of the hardest things I've done. So I'm, I'm pretty. It's pretty hard to top that. But if we're going to get a little fun, I guess I'm looking forward to also the potential of perhaps going to see Endgame on Saturday before we go out to dinner to celebrate my graduation because I think I have six movies left. It's going to be close, but I think I can pull it off. So I think I'll be done with Marvel this week. Um, I am not really looking forward to the end of Game of Thrones after this week. I'm I'm anxious to see what happens, but my, my expectations have been um, leveled. Like, And this is a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched it. So my expectations have been leveled like Westeros.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's not it, – it doesn't carry the same excitement this week as it would have had they not abandoned so many character arcs and storylines. And, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, obviously, because we're running out of time. But it's been a little bit of a, of a disappointment uh, Avengers Endgame wasn't so you have that to look forward to. I thoroughly enjoyed that, so that was good. Um, but yeah, so what are you just,
1: looking forward to?
0: Just coming down this weekend, seeing seeing uh, seeing you graduate, um, and uh, yeah, potentially playing some some baseball too
1: that we i i are starting shortstop closed his finger in the in the in the door so i'm down a shortstop
0: a little nip from a jack russell terrier so
1: that's we have a big it's actually a rematch of the semifinals too so it's a big game i'm coming in cap and gown from the commencement i'm just gonna <laughs> you know gonna get flown in like deon sanders
0: <laughs> all right well uh well, there you have it. Again, uh, that, that'll that do it for us this week. Thanks so, so much to David Cohn and, and Jack Curry. We, we had a blast talking to them, and hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. We'll be back next week with, uh, hopefully, another guest and hopefully some more Yankee wins and hopefully some good news on the injury front. But other than that, that's, that's all we got this week. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening, and, and we'll talk to you in a week.
1: See you later, everybody.